The timing, I couldn't believe it. Of all times for an earthquake, I'm thinking to myself, you know, I got this granary violin, what do I do? <laughs> Don't want that to get damaged. Oh, man. You know, one thing, if something falls on my head, but if it hits the violin, then that'd be really bad. <laughs> Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Hi, my name is Joe McHugh. When you walk into a violin shop to have your instrument worked on, do you ask yourself, I wonder what kind of training the luthier received before he decided to hang up his shingle for business? Did he apprentice with a recognized master? If he did, for how long? Perhaps he went to a violin making school. Well, are there such schools, and if so, where are they? How many years does it take to graduate, and how much does it cost? Well, for years I never asked myself any of those questions, I just assumed the owner of the shop knew what he or she was doing. But thanks to the Rosin the Bow project, I became curious about what it takes to become a first-class violin maker. And that's why my wife Paul and I decided to take a trip to San Francisco to interview Roland Feller. His shop is located on the second floor of a building on Divisadero Street, halfway between the Fillmore District and the Haight-Ashbury. Roland is one of the most respected violin makers and restorers in the country, and here he shares his personal story of being a luthier, beginning with his childhood in Switzerland. My name is uh, Roland Feller. I was born in Switzerland and grew up there. Born in Bern, the capital city of Switzerland. But, but I grew up in a small town, a watchmaking town, about maybe 20 miles north of Bern, a town of about 4,500 people. The town's name is called Langnau, and um, I'm sure you've never heard of it. I would be surprised if you did. But anyway, that's where I grew up. Uh, both my parents were teachers uh, in uh, school. My dad was uh, a teacher at the... Uh, middle school and my mom had been a primary school teacher uh, I'm one of six children so my mom was home after the first one arrived I'm number five of six and I feel lucky that all through my life I've had uh, music to listen to and to be involved in in our house both my parents played instruments my mom played the piano and the cello my dad played uh, violin and viola, and um, I would hear when my mom could steal herself away a little bit of time after all the kids were put to bed, let's say. She'd practice the piano. I was in a room next door, so I felt very lucky to be able to hear that. So trying to go to sleep with some Schumann Kinderszenen or Chopin or whatever she was playing, Bach, with her favorite composer, and I would be next door trying to stay awake, not to miss a note. And uh, so those are some of my first uh, musical uh, memories, if you will. My dad also did some teaching of violin and uh, viola, mainly violin, I guess. He taught two of my sisters who play violin. So I would sometimes hear that. And when I was old enough to choose an instrument, I had started on uh, recorder just to kind of learn the music, uh, the notation, things like that. 
And then when I was a little bit older, uh, my parents asked what instrument I might like to play. And I said, well, I don't really know. And how about the cello? I says, sure. Since mom plays the cello, it's got to be good, right? So they got me a cello. And I definitely feel to this day that that was the right instrument for me. Um, I love the cello. Not that I don't like the violin or viola. I like those too. But for me, personality-wise, I feel that cello was a perfect match. And um, our parents made it possible for all of us to play an instrument, all six of us, and uh, get music lessons. And I had a wonderful cello teacher. For that, I would have to go to the next biggest city, which is uh, Bilbien. It's right on the border of German and French-speaking Switzerland. They have a music conservatory there. And uh, my parents arranged for me to go take lessons there. And I loved to go there because I really liked my cello teacher, who, when I was a kid, was maybe a lady in her 30s, I would imagine. She played with the Basel Symphony Orchestra and then did some teaching on the side one day in Bielbien at the conservatory there. So I started out in a half-size cello and as I grew, got the next size, three-quarter, my dad took me to Bern to a violin shop to get the next size and I was really kind of excited what I saw there. I had always enjoyed woodworking working with my hands. My dad, besides being math teacher, physics, chemistry and all that, he also taught uh, woodshop at the school. And during summer vacation, he would have to organize the shop, get the tools all sharpened up again. And since he knew that I liked to work with tools, he asked me if I'd be interested to come and help him. And I was very interested in that. Spent many a day there. I learned how to sharpen tools, which came in very handy later on. He showed me how to use some of those tools. He did have a workshop in the basement where he would do some things. I mean, he didn't have a lot of time to work there, but he was very kind and let me kind of mess around in, in, in the shop there and use his tools. Probably not always, I was probably not using them the right way all the time when I was a kid, but. I don't remember him ever getting angry at me. He was trying to use a chisel for a screwdriver, that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but since I now knew how to sharpen them, if I did make a mistake earlier, then um, um, I fixed the tool and then knew not to do that again. Anyway, when it came time for me to get a full-size cello, again, my dad took me to a violin shop in the town where the conservatory is, Bielbien, and at that point, I had a chance to kind of take a peek into the shop, and I saw somebody sitting there carving a cello bridge. And I thought that was just the most amazing thing, that you could cut wood with a knife. You know, I always thought, well, you cut butter and the vegetables and all that kind of stuff with a knife, but cutting wood with a knife was a new thing to me. I knew chisels and gouges and all that kind of stuff, but knives? And I was really fascinated. I told my dad, that's what I want to do. And I was about 12 years old. I kept going with the cello. We would sometimes at home have some Jamie music concerts that my mom would arrange and invite a few friends and neighbors and we'd play. And 
trio, quartet, whatever combination we could get together. What was the first full-size cello? What was its make, or do you remember that as a good instrument? Well, it was a good student instrument. It was a German commercial instrument, good beginner's instrument, if you will. Not a great instrument of any kind, but something that worked properly and, and uh, got me got me going. Then later on, my family, my parents got me a nicer instrument. It's an older bohemian instrument that I still have. I don't play it anymore because I play a cello that I made myself now but I still do have that cello uh, sitting around. Anyway, um, I thought that'd be fun to make musical instruments. Later on, uh, I had a good friend who really was into cars, and he worked at a garage on, on his days off and taught, told me about stuff he's doing um, in the garage, and I thought, oh boy, cars, you know, I get... He got to drive a car even though he was only 15 years old. And I thought, wow, that's really exciting. Maybe I should do that. And he showed me around there. And it, it seemed like fun, but I'm glad in the end I decided not to do the cars <laughs> and got back with the idea of working with instruments. And I'm extremely grateful to my parents for letting me do that and supporting me because there were some people who felt, why would you let him do that? that? That's something they did 200 years ago, and how is he going to make a living? But I guess they could see that I had some talent in working with my hands and music. So really, I came into valley making with a combination of growing up with music and enjoying woodworking. And there is a school in Switzerland uh, in a town called Brienz, uh, in the Bernese uh, up near the uh, mountains there where they have a long tradition of wood carving uh, there's a fairly large school where they teach wood carving and there's a small section that in the 50s I believe got started with a valley making school they'd only have five or six students that's all and I looked into that but they had an opening at the time and my cello teacher says, you know, there's a very famous violin making school in uh, Germany in a town called Mittenwald. It's in the Bavarian Alps, somewhere between Munich and Innsbruck. It's If you go south from Munich, it's the last town in Germany before you get into Austria. And um, I was 15 years old at the time. I applied to the school in Mittenwald, and lo and behold, they accepted me. And you were just 15? I was 15, yep. And my dad took me there. It's the first time really I left Switzerland. I had never been outside of the country. We didn't really have the means to travel when I was a kid, you know, with six kids and music lessons for six people. I remember once asking my dad, how come we're the only ones on the block who don't have a car? All my friends and neighbors, they have cars and they go places and, and we don't have one. And uh, he says, well... I could get a nice car, but you kids wouldn't have music lessons. Well, that put me in my place. I never questioned that again. I thought it was a very wise decision on their part, because it is something that's certainly, in, in my life, has been extremely important. Tell me about that first year in Mittenwald and uh, your, your father 
drove I guess they drove you up or well, no I took the train took the train yeah <laughs> um, I remember the, April the 4th 1967 it's a day I'll never forget got up early said goodbye to my mom and my dad came took me to this new place and um, took the train to Zurich and changed went to Innsbruck and then there you change again to a small train that goes from in the valley of Innsbruck up over the mountain then into Mittenwald it's fairly high up uh, in the mountains there and uh, so we got through the mountains there there was still snow up there it's pretty cold and raining and, and in those days we still had to go through the borders and they check the passport controls and all that so after the passport control from Austria to Mittenwald we got to the train station there and uh, it's a dreary day it was raining and uh, didn't feel very comfortable and I thought what did I get myself into here my dad made arrangements to find the place where I was going to live um, most students would rent a room in somebody's house uh, they didn't have any dormitories at the time. I believe they do now, but in those days, students would just stay in families' homes, rent a room. And my dad took me to the house where I had my room, and that's where I spent the first six months then uh, living there. And next day, I did go to school and got shown around, got started there. And uh, one of the first things, generally, we would do is get a big plank of wood that we have to plane down to 1.8 millimeters thickness for linings of the instruments for violin linings and obviously I didn't want to make any mistakes so I did it very slowly you know the, the thing was an inch thick and by the time it was half an inch I would measure it all the time make sure it's not getting too thin and there was another guy a new student from Holland who was just the opposite he planed it down so fast he was up to his knees in, in wood chips and all of a sudden was too thin so I had to start all over again um, I tend to be more slow going at the time I make sure I do it just right so it took me a while to do that but but I got it eventually and uh, it was really exciting to be there in Mittenwald because as I said I'd never been out of the country I didn't know any people from other nationalities and yet in this little town in Mittenwald there we had students from all over the world. We had a total of about 36 students. I would say at that time half of them maybe were uh, Germans and we had people from Japan, Korea, US, Sweden, France, you name it, from all over the place. And it was really neat to get to meet other young people different backgrounds all with the same idea though how to learn how to make good violins I should add Mittenwald is known for violin making it's a tradition that goes back to probably late 1600s or so and in the 1800s particularly early 1900s that was the main industry of that town where uh, probably thousands of instruments were produced a lot of times there would be made in people's homes where one person would just make scrolls somebody else would make the body of the instrument and then they would deliver it to a central station and the company that ran the whole 
thing would put them together varnish them and send them all over the world so even today i see violins here from mittenwald from middle 1700s up through the 1950s so would that um, that connotation be that would be called a factory fiddle when you have even though it's not done in a room as we normally think of a factory but the fact that one person just does the scrolls piecework and then sends it all in and then they're made, they're put together that's what's different than a custom violin maker it is those essentially would be could be called factory violins yes right. and there always have been and still are makers who have their own shop who just do their own work but um, late 1800s early 1900s particularly a lot of the makers did work for these companies i guess that was the easiest way to sell your stuff rather than having to go out and peddle it into the world which in those days would have been difficult for the average person with a family to get out and try to sell his stuff that he makes yeah so and how how expensive was it to go to this school you know that's the amazing thing when i think back now and i'm always grateful to the german state or bavaria in this case uh, that even though half of us were foreigners all we had to pay was like 50 marks per semester as a registration fee that's it uh, and what would that be in today's the, money in the United States. In today's money? Well, today's money might be $50. Okay, at that time it was maybe 12 or $15. Yeah, yeah. So very, very reasonable. So all I really needed is money to live on. And um, I was lucky to get some support from a foundation in Switzerland because my dad had just recently passed away uh, when I was 16 years old. My dad passed away, and uh, all of a sudden, we had one younger sister, and my mom was still trying to uh, take care of her and, and help me finish, obviously. And so it wasn't easy, but but uh, I was I learned how to be frugal. I was able to live. I think the lowest I've ever managed to do a month was forty dollars. <laughs> that was for the rent and and uh, food so i lived very <laughs> cheaply there of course also i lived um where i lived that first six months that didn't work out very well with the landlady um so i decided to move somewhere else um, life in mittenwald the beginning was hard because you know i was still very young and had never lived on my own i had to do my own shopping laundry cooking and I'm not much of a cook, so <laughs> I lived very simply there. And school was fairly intensive, but we also, uh, the school would be available for us to go there in the evenings if we wanted to play some music, as an example. We could mm -hmm. do that. And I started being exposed to playing German music, which more, uh, quartet particularly, and played in several groups. The school also had an orchestra that we were kind of required to play and I was happy to do that so there was always music there um, the second place where I lived in order to save money it was a how should I say definitely low rent district a lot of students lived in places where the local people would rent out because they couldn't rent it to any tourists Mittenwald by that time had become uh, 
a tourist destination because it's beautiful countryside, fresh air and all that, skiing in the winter, hiking in the summer. So town's main industry had become tourism, really. So rooms that had ceilings that were six or seven feet high or rooms with no heating or drafty or what have you, they would rent out to valley-making students because they probably knew they wouldn't complain. That's all they could afford. And a good friend of mine at the time, we rented these two rooms. One of them had a wooden stove, no central heating, and the other room had no heat at all. And Mittenwald can get pretty darn cold in the wintertime. I moved in there in November, and the landlady, she was, she was a nice person, but she was very tight and cheap. We moved in there, half the window panes were missing. And right in front of the, in front of the window was the river that came down from the, the main river. It's like a, a side river, a canal, if you will, to drive a turbine. So they produced some electricity that they sold to the city. But they would not let us use an electric heater because that was using too much electricity. So in order, if you wanted heat, we had to make a fire in the, in the stove. If wanted to do some cooking, that's what we had to do. But anyway, when one morning we woke up and there was snow that had come in through the window. Inside our room, there was a pile of snow. And we thought, well, we got to do something because they're not going to fix it. So they had a sawmill across the river that um, had belonged to the family too. And we were able to collect some wood scraps for the fireplace, for the, for the wood stove. But we scrounged around looking for old pieces of glass. And we found a few and we cut them up and put them into the missing, where the missing panes were. After that first snowstorm, we just put cardboard there, but you know, there was no light. And, and uh, eventually we wanted to get glass in there. And we were almost done with all the glass, but there were about two or three still missing. And I remember one night we were sitting at the dinner table trying to do our homework with our gloves on, hat, jacket, because it was freezing cold there. And we looked up at the, at the uh, wall. There was this kind of kitschy painting that somebody had done. And I think my friend and I had probably the same idea at the exact same second. We looked at that painting and said, isn't there glass in front of that <laughs> painting? <laughs> and he said, let's take this painting down. We don't really like it anyway. We took the glass out of there, cut it into three pieces of window pane. And now we had at least no more draft and snow coming in. And we took the painting and put it into a room across the hall where there was a lot of junk in there. And our room where we were was kind of the last room before you got to the barn. So the next door over is where the chickens and the cows were. And it was kind of funny. The, the, the husband of the landlady, he would come at 8 o'clock at night before he go to bed. People, they would go to bed early and get up early. He'd come back there and say goodnight to the chickens and the cows because... They were friendly to him, and uh, I can't say the same about his wife. <laughs> she was kind of bossing him around. And he was an old man. He had, had asthma. He had trouble breathing. And he'd sometimes come and wake us up at 3 o'clock in the morning 
begging if you could please clean out the uh, the screen where the water goes through a screen before it gets to the turbine because when the leaves all clog up the the, uh, the screen then the water would go over the overflow and make a lot of noise and keep the tourists who were in the fancy part of the house keep them awake they would be complaining so the old man would come and ask us if he would please help him and he would <gasps> like this because he couldn't do it and we'd do it especially my friend often did it bless his heart and I'm thinking that was okay for them to wake us up and do it but for us to use an electric heater if we got caught we got screamed at by the landlady she actually decided to put an electric meter right in front of our door so if she would walk by she could see how fast the wheel was going if we were using too much electricity and they were we, generating electricity they were generating yeah <laughs> but they would lose a few pennies that they couldn't sell to the city if we were using it up you know and I must say, I mean, our rent was 80 marks a month. So 40 marks a piece, which at that time was $10 with an exchange rate of the day. So rent was extremely cheap. But w one winter it was so cold and we couldn't collect enough wood to keep warm. And in the, we came home from a concert and we were freezing and we said, we have to find something to make a fire because we're just freezing we'd even burn some of our violin wood that we had gotten because we were desperate you know we had some they weren't great pieces of wood but it was wood intended to make violins with but you get so cold there comes a point you know when you want to stay warm and we put some of that in the stove just to stay warm it felt terrible but we thought there's got to be some wood in the, in the barn next door let's go over to the barn and look around see if we can find something <laughs> we went there with our flashlights it's 12 o'clock at night one o'clock at night and we found some old furniture some night tables and we looked at those and you know these people haven't used those in years and they'll probably never miss them <laughs> we took them over to our place and since we were away from the main house um you know we could tear it apart and nobody would hear anything I for a few years when I was living in Mittenwald I, I played trombone too and I could practice my trombone in that last room the, the one without he, uh, any heat and nobody would hear me the walls were about you know three feet thick it's a house that was built in the 1600s anyway we we tore apart some of those pieces of furniture just to stay stay warm going to bed was always tough because the room with no heat and with the river right outside the window it would always be damp you know you get into bed and everything feels damp and you felt you couldn't warm up and finally when you warm up then the alarm goes off it's time to go back to school <laughs> so it was uh, I learned what roughing it is all about if you will now on the other hand having the creek right or the river right outside the window was very helpful in the summertime because we didn't have refrigeration any place so we buy a quart of milk and try to keep it from going sour in those days they were selling milk in plastic bottles that had a neck and we would tie a rope around the neck and stick it out into the river stay nice and cold and then when we needed it we 
pulled it in, used it, and that worked really well. So your instructors in the school, what were they like? Were they did they, did they have patience with you, or were they was it a strict sort? It depended. I mean, there were five or six teachers all together, and like any school you go to, teachers there's different mentalities. The teacher I had, Carl Roy, who later became the director of the school. When I went to the school, the director's name was uh, Conrad Leonhardt, and he was very nice and understanding. I liked him a lot. Carl Roy, I think, was a good teacher. Um, he would mostly explain in words how to do it and then expect you to follow that instruction. Whereas the other main shop downstairs, there were two main shops where the new class was split in two and there would be th three or four students on one side and three or four on the other. And then they had the older students too. Uh, but that was the shop mainly for making. There was a separate shop for repairs. There was a separate shop for learning how to do uh, varnishing and a separate shop for learning how to do setup work, meaning fitting sound posts, cutting bridges, fitting in pegs, that kind of stuff. But in the main shop is where you did the actual making of instruments, the what we call the work in the white instrument. That's when it's finished, looks white before there's any stain or varnish on it. And the teacher on the other side, Herr Hornsteiner, he would more likely sit down with somebody and show the person how to do it spend a fair amount of time, especially with the young women that uh, were his students there. He spent more time with them, I guess, than other people. And Carl Roy would, as I said, explain what he wanted, and then you go do it, and then you bring it back to him, and he'd criticize the work. And I remember one example, maybe the first, was maybe the second base bar I ever had to fit, which is a hard thing to do when you've never done it before. And it took me hours to get it closed, and I finally had it ready where I thought, now it's ready to glue, and I took it to Herr Roy, and I said, is this ready to glue now? He says, well, fits pretty good, it's, it's okay, but uh, you might want to consider putting it on the other side. Fit it on the wrong side. <laughs> Explain just briefly what a bass bar is and where it fits in a fiddle. Okay, the, the bass bar, is a piece of wood that runs lengthwise under the bass side of the instrument. With other words, the, on the violin where the G string is, and the cello and viola where the C string is, the lowest of the strings. It supports the top on that side. It helps to distribute the vibrations that come from the strings to the bridge, to the top. Bass bar spreads it out. On the other side, the treble side, we have the uh, sound post. Um, the sound post is a little dowel, if you will. It's about the thickness of a pencil. And that gets fit uh, just slightly behind the bridge on the treble side of the instrument, on the side with, where the higher strings are. And that also does support the top on that side and transfers vibrations from strings to the bridge top through the sound post onto the back. And some people call that the sole of the instrument? Yeah, it is actually, it doesn't look like much when you look at it, just a little stick of wood. 
but it is so important to the instrument that in, in Italian my understanding is the translation is they call it the soul of the instrument. And where it's positioned is, is an absolute art. The place where you put the sound post is extremely important, yes. And with slight movements of a sound post, you can at times have quite a dramatic impact on the instrument's sound. So yes, it is extremely important. Yeah. Another friend of ours who had, who had lived actually in the very same rooms where my buddy and I live now, when he still lived there, we sometimes get together after school and shoot the breeze or play music or what have you. And we came home once late, nine o'clock. And of course, in, in Mittenwald, like most Germany at the time at least, most stores were closed at 6.30. Sunday they closed, or Saturday they closed early sometimes, grocery stores, let's say. So you have to make plans for your weekend meals. You have to go shopping Saturday morning, otherwise you might go hungry. It's not like here where you can go shopping anytime, day or night, um, if need be. So we came home, I think, from a hike, and we hadn't done our shopping as we should have. And this fellow who lived there said, you know, I think there's some chickens back there. Maybe we'll see if there's some eggs that they have laid. And he found some eggs, and he made omelet for everybody. And uh, it was one of the best omelets I ever had. <laughs> but I feel a little guilty now when I think about it. We really kind of stole those eggs from our landlady, but I figured with how she was treating us, I didn't feel so bad, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So to uh, to graduate from that school, do you have to complete a, vi a certain violin? or w What's the graduation requirement? To graduate in the first year and a half that you're in a downstairs shop, you would generally start out with two violins at the, at the same time that you're making one to kind of get you going, the second one hopefully already being a little bit better. After you finish those, then you could make a viola, make a cello if you wanted to, which is what I, well, I made a viola first and then a cello. Some people were also interested in Baroque instrument, and my teacher was kind of specialist in the gamba family instruments, so if somebody wanted to, they could also make uh, viola da gamba or d'amore or what have you. But the majority of people would stick with the violin, family of instruments. And would the school provide the wood and then does the school own the violin or cello? Or <laughs> yes. The school provides all the uh, uh, materials, the teaching obviously. Um, they have some tools, although we were encouraged to get our own and there are some tools like a knife and chisels that you really want to have your own. You don't want to share those with anybody else. You know, everybody has a slightly different way maybe of sharpening it or using it and it wouldn't feel right to to share that tools that are m more rare being used could be shared but we, we had to acquire our own set of tools um, during that first year or so so you make those two first violins then viola cello what have you and the the school would own the instruments Upon graduation, you were allowed to buy one or two instruments at cost, pretty much. The examination instrument at the end, after three and a half years, the one you make to prove that you're now a, uh, a journeyman, they still have that system there. We make the Gesellenprüfung, the journeyman's exam. That instrument you were able to keep. 
and that is uh, in my case since I played cello I made a cello for myself and I was able to buy a viola for was like 200 marks or something you know $75 for material costs which I thought was very generous of them and that's a viola that my sister still plays to this day and I played a cello is this one you made it is ah. yeah Generally, the instruments would be made downstairs, and then the way they did it at the school, the ground that we used was um, uh, linseed oil, and after you put that on the instrument, they would have to hang up in the air to have a chance to dry, and they would be hanging up there for one, two, three years, depending on what the need was. So right after we move upstairs to the varnishing shop, we'd actually be varnishing somebody else's instrument that they had made. Ours were not ready yet to be varnished. Linseed oil still needed time to dry. And as it dries, it gives the, the wood this beautiful golden ground. You can see that on you know, old wooden chalets, as an example, on a building, or wood that's been exposed to air gets this beautiful natural ground that it's kind of hard to do artificially. So we would learn to varnish instruments that had been made a few years earlier and then somebody else later would varnish our instruments for the exam i was able to varnish the viola that i had made it had hung up long enough that it was dry enough so i could now do the uh, varnishing on that so for the exam we had to make one instrument in the white and another instrument that we had made earlier, we'd have to varnish so they could see, can we do everything? Mm. And if you did, then you'd get the uh, Gesellen, the, the, the journeyman's certificate that you've completed the, the course and can go out into the world. Yeah. That's fascinating. I love this whole process of how, how people get trained. It's, it's completely different in the United States. There is no system. Someone right. just can learn whatever way they learn and then eventually put out a shingle and say they make violins. Right. What's your thought about that? How would you compare the two together, those two systems? Well, as I said, I'm the, the basic school system is totally different. So it's hard for, for me sometimes to explain to somebody my schooling background. I think in Germany, particularly German-speaking countries, same for Austria and Switzerland, where they still have that old system you start out as a as a student and you could go to school or you could learn in somebody's shop but most big city shops don't really have the time to teach all that and I've encountered that later on I've trained people in repair restoration but I people ask me can you show me how to make a violin well I don't really have the time running my business to take the time to teach somebody the basics the ABC of making. They have to have the ABC under their belt before a shop can really take somebody on. And here, I mean, one reason I'm, I'm here in this country is that at that time I graduated at the violin making school in uh, fall of 1970. There were no violin making schools in this country. There are several now, but in those days there weren't any. And big shops who needed people to work for them would either have to train them from square one or have to import people. And my best friend and I 
when we got close to finishing at school, we're trying to debate where you're going to go when you finish, and oh, I don't know. Might be nice to see a different part of the world. And there used to be a violin shop owner from Los Angeles by the name of Hans Weishardt, the one that Bob Ray mentioned to you, who had trained in Mittenwald decades earlier. He'd come over and look for people to come work for him. And we thought we would maybe take him up on that. But then an American who was at the school at the same time heard that my buddy and I wanted to come to this country. And his dad knew the people at Wurlitzers in New York very well. And Wurlitzers at that point was desperate to get some people with training to come and work for them because they couldn't find the, the qualified people here. So when we were told that if we go to New York, we'd have a chance to work with an Italian master by the name of Simone Fernando Sacconi, a name that everybody in the violin-making world knows. He's by many looked at as maybe the most important maker-restorer of the 20th century. He was from Rome originally and came to this country maybe in the 20s or so, and first worked in a shop in New York by the name of Emil Hermann. And when Hermann retired, Sacconi moved over to work with uh, Rembert Wurlitzer, who is probably the greatest expert in this country, or was at that time at least, and still by many looked at as uh, the greatest or one of the couple of greatest experts in recognizing instruments. So the two of them made an excellent team. Wurlitzer, from what I understand, had like a photographic memory. He could look at an instrument and remember it. Few people can do that, whereas Sacconi came from the making background and by deduction would be able to figure out what an instrument is. And he, in addition to doing restoration work on uh, fine old instruments, he probably worked on more great instruments than anybody else in his in uh, in that time span that he worked. All the great musicians of the world would come and see him if they were in New York. Backtrack a little bit. When we heard that there was an opening there that we could work with Sacconi, we decided to go to New York. Even though Los Angeles with palm trees and all that for people from <laughs> Central Europe sounded a lot, lot more exciting. But in New York at that time didn't sound so exciting because it was pretty a rough place, a lot of crime. And... When we got there, you know, all we could afford is a little hole in the wall at the edge of Hell's Kitchen. But the experience that we were able to gain working there is something that I'm forever grateful. What I learned there, you know, I remember at school telling us, okay, now you have a good education. Now don't let the big boss in the city tell you you don't know anything yet. And so I thought, well, okay, I'm, I know something now. And I showed up at that time was the premier shop in this country, I would say, one of the premier shops in the world, as a matter of fact. And I realized on the first day, oops, I know my ABC, but that's about it. And then it was time to roll up my sleeves and learn. And it is at that time also when I realized how important a good teacher is and that teacher-student, it's not just a one-way street transferring knowledge from teacher to student. Sacconi was a really nice, wonderful man. He was a little bit like a father to me. He, you could ask him, what do you think of this idea? And he would tell you and say, well, try that once, doesn't work. 
Oh, okay. Or he'd say, you know, I never thought about it. Why don't you try it? It's something I used later on when I was training people. It's good to listen to your, your students because you can learn from them too. So I enjoyed teaching when I was later on training people in, in repair restoration because it's um, something that both sides can gain from. And Sacconi made this offer to us that I couldn't believe. You know, here we were fresh out of school. I was 19 years old. And he says, would you be interested in coming in on Saturday when the, the shop is closed? But I'll be here, he says. And would you like to learn the classic Italian system of violin making? Because we had learned the, the German Mittenwald system. And it's quite different. And I thought, my God, here's this great Sacconi asking me, who am I? to do this yes of course and every Saturday we went there and he showed us from the ground up how Strad Stradivarius uh, had done his violins and that's kind of what I I kind of got hooked on that and when I was making instruments that's kind of the system I followed since then did Sicconi also make uh, cellos other he made violas, he made cellos. Uh, actually, I have a viola here. I've seen cellos of his. Um, there was a local collector who had about three or four Sacconi violins, including the last one that Sacconi had ever made. So it was always exciting for me when he, this collector would bring them in just to be checked over, make sure everything is okay. And I always felt very honored to see those and to work on my hero, if you will, instruments. Mm. That's very cool. So how did the move to San Francisco come about? Good so question. I had a, a two-year contract with the Wurlitzer shop, and unfortunately, at the end of the two years, Mrs. Sacconi passed away. He was maybe 78 years old. He was quite elderly. Passed away, and life in New York was pretty tough for me at the time, and the personal... Uh, situation to shop wasn't that wonderful uh, so I felt I had th the main reason namely Mrs. Aconi was no longer here do I really want to stay in New York so I was thinking of moving back to Switzerland and then I thought well ideally I should really see another part of the country before I go back home so I don't go home with the impression of New York as being representative of the U.S. because as we all know New York is kind of a separate uh, entity if you will and interestingly enough at Sacconi's funeral I met a man who had decades earlier worked with Sacconi and had now a shop in San Francisco and when he heard that I was thinking of leaving and going back he says well why don't you come work for me I need somebody desperately and you could come to San Francisco and work for me and I thought well I'd seen pictures of San Francisco that looked pretty nice and thought maybe I'd do that for a couple of years and then go home and I came here and it was October 1973 it was a day like today beautiful weather um, nice people I liked my co-worker at the shop where I worked and I worked there for several years and when it came time to you know realize I had to do something on my own now that I, I had no future there long term. I figured, well, if I go back to Switzerland now, nobody knows me. I'd have to start all over again. And my, 
colleague at the shop who had wanted to leave for some time. He was a generation older than me. He was a bow maker, uh, Jim Fury. He had wanted to leave because he didn't like working there. So we thought, well, look, since we're basically running the shop for this guy without, well, let's just leave it at that. We want to do our own thing. Might as well run our own shop. And so we did. We didn't tell anybody. We just rented a little place up on Masonic Avenue, about a mile from here, and set up our benches. And my partner happened to look out the window. He says, look who's down there. And I looked down there, and it was Stuart Kanan, who was at that time the concertmaster of the San Francisco Symphony. He was looking for us. He had heard that we had a little place on Masonic and Geary, and he came looking for us because his Stradivarius had an open seam that he needed to have glued up. And so I thought, well, that's a pretty good start, having the concertmaster of the San Francisco Symphony be our first customer. And in our gallery up there, the first picture we ever received from, from a satisfied customer. And I was a little bit worried because at that point, we, we had just moved in. We didn't have an alarm system yet. We didn't have a safe yet. I'm thinking, I can't leave the violin here uh, at night you know, when, when the glue is drying. So I took it home with me and uh, didn't leave my apartment. And next morning, took it back again. <laughs> Because I want to make sure it's it's safe, and that's how I kept it safe. Anyway, that's that was our first customer, and been busy ever since. How many years have you been here now? We started our shop when we got the business license. It was kind of funny. We we looked at the license. It said seven seven seventy seven. So since July seventy seven, we had our shop, and we moved to this location in nineteen eighty nine, right after the earthquake. So I have been here since then. And uh, did the earthquake affect you? Yeah, we were lucky. It didn't. I have had one little jar of varnish that fell off a shelf and made the place smell really good. It was kind of messed to clean up, but it had, had some uh, lavender oil in it, so it smelled really good. But I do remember when it was about 5 o'clock when the earthquake hit, and... It's amazing how many thoughts go through your mind in a split second. If you look at my shop, you see a lot of instruments hanging and they started swinging back and forth. And I thought, now if they start swinging too much, I'm going to jump off the hooks and should I stay here? I happened to be working on a Guarneri violin at the time. And I'm thinking, what do I, maybe I should take the Guarneri violin on my arm and stand in the doorway. But before I do that, I should maybe stop the instruments from swinging so I held on to one and of course they all kind of bumped into each other luckily not very hard by the time I made it to the doorway the shaking stopped thank god but it was pretty scary but the thoughts you know should I take this fiddle and go hide on my bench or in the doorway or what a lot of stuff goes through your mind in very little time great San Francisco story what year again was that <laughs> That was um, in uh, October of 89. That was the one. The that Loma Prieta. took the bridge down. That's the one. Yeah. But I love that you're holding a Guarneri. Yeah, I mean, the timing, I couldn't believe it. Of all times for an earthquake, I'm thinking to myself, you know, I got this Guarneri violin, what do I do? <laughs> Don't want that to get damaged. Oh, man. You know, one thing, if something falls on my head, but if it hits the violin, then that would be really bad. <laughs> Any other just moments, you know, we call them war stories. The moment something's happened here in the shop that just 
you know, stands out you, whenever you, you get together with other violin makers or violin shop owners or the customer that came in who was just incredibly generous, incredibly impossible. What, what happens in a violin shop? Boy, I don't, I don't know what stories to, to tell there. I mean, there's stories happening every day, some more, more interesting than others. You know, we've had quite a few people over the years telling us, you should write some of this stuff down. And I keep thinking, yeah, I really should, because I won't remember it in detail. And um, it would make some good reading. What's nice is that somebody came in and is white like a sheet. This is what happened. I just drove over my violin. And I remember the first time I ever heard that, somebody driving over their violin, backing the car over the violin. I says, no, that, that, that doesn't happen. It is remarkable how often it happens, actually. And I understand now how. You know, people leave the house. They're maybe in a hurry to get to a gig. They put the instrument on the, uh, either on the, on the roof, potentially, of the car and then drive off, or they put it behind the car to look for the key for the, for the trunk. And the kid calls in or the phone is ringing and they rush in and get the phone to take care of the kid. And now they're late and they get in the car, put it in reverse and it's, it's done. So over the years, it's this, that story, I've heard it quite a number of times. And depending how bad it is, you know, if the instrument's broken pretty badly, could be that or somebody once in a pit, in a ballet, stepped in the violin because it was dark and it was crowded and uh, the stamp partner stepped in the violin and they brought it to me and crying look what happened to my violin and little by little you put it back together almost like a puzzle if it's a valuable violin that's what they do on a cheap one it wouldn't make sense economically speaking but on something valuable and putting it back together when the customer comes in to pick it up to see their eyes light up. They thought they would never play that violin again. And here you've put it back together so it's usable again and sounds good again. I've even heard a couple of times at the end, colleagues were telling me, it sounds better than before. <laughs> that makes me feel pretty good. You know, I'm doing a good job and being able to put something that's very dear to the owner back together. Because when you think about it, to a lot of professional musicians next to their family, spouse and kids, their instrument is probably the closest thing to them in the world. And if the violin doesn't, the cello, whatever, the instrument doesn't work right, either because of adjustment or something bad happens, an accident, it's like your kid got run over by a car to some people. That's how they feel about their instrument. And so to be able to help them is a very nice feeling. I bet. It's kind of like Lazarus. Yeah. There was one violin, actually, I called it, I nicknamed it the Lazarus because I literally felt I brought it back from the dead. <laughs> it took me about a year to work on that thing. Um, it had so many, uh, so much damage. And uh, yes, we nicknamed it the Lazarus. <laughs> it's funny you mention it. And where is it now? I have no idea. Here's a piece of music composed by Bach and performed by violinist Patrick Galvin whose violin has been maintained by Roland for many years.
Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For information concerning this podcast and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. We'd enjoy hearing from you, so please send us an email. And perhaps you have a story about your own favorite luthier. We'd sure love to hear it.